Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Mark Abrams, who will discuss the Ig Nobel Prizes. Also, we'll find out the distance from the North to the South Pole. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. So, uh, what's going on this week? I don't even know. I mean, the weeks go by so quickly nowadays, it's it's almost like only hours have passed. Or yeah. Minutes. You know, I still have done nothing useful in my life yet. <laughs> well, maybe one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But it turns out some scientists are. Oh, is that right? Uh, computer scientists. Oh, okay. Well, at least somebody is. So they came out with the latest top 500 ranking of supercomputers in the world. Oh, neat. Just last week with the uh, the top prize going to uh, the Earth Simulator in Japan. The Earth Simulator in Japan. Yes. So it operates at 35 teraflops or 35 trillion fully operations per second to simulate the Earth. Oh, wow. So am I in it? Huh? Are you in it? No. Are we all in it? I don't know. Is it Maybe the Matrix. <laughs> Maybe we're in it right now. Whoa. <laughs> Maybe we're we're actually in the supercomputer. <laughs> the Omega Star. <laughs> That's right. The world has been pulled over our eyes to blind us from the truth. Whoa. But uh, very interesting news is that the number three supercomputer is actually um, been made from uh, off-the-shelf parts, namely 1,100 uh, Power Mac computers from Apple <laughs> that really? they had strung together using uh, a bunch of routers, and now... It's the third fastest computer in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Where's this uh, computer located? It's actually at Virginia Tech, and it's nicknamed the Big Mac. <laughs> Big Mac. Does it come with a cider or fries as well? That's what I want. You know, <laughs> yeah, extra ketchup, please. Please, yeah. Neat. So what are they using that computer for? Uh, you know, various simulations. A lot of, you know, scientists want to simulate everything, basically. Right. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to get a picture of 1,100, uh, you know, blue computers in one room. It's actually silver. Oh, they're the silver ones? Right. The All right. Ones. So at least that's at least a little more tasteful. <laughs> right, but in terms of uh, teraflops per dollar, it's actually a lot cheaper than uh, either the Earth Simulator or the number two, which is uh, the Los Alamos Cluster. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a nuclear bomb simulator, from what I've heard. Ooh, okay. Yeah, we need more of those. Huh? Uh, often I want to know exactly what my nuclear bomb is going to do before <laughs> I actually detonate it. Yeah, where does your tax dollar go? Right? I know. But uh, this opens a lot of possibilities in terms of uh, universities and uh, small companies building their own superclusters. Right. In the future. Yeah, it's not that hard, you know, get a couple academic discounts for some uh, Mac computers. and Right, go. for a few million dollars. Right, right. Well, I mean, a lot of people have been using the PCs sort of as a computational research, right? The SETI right, home project. Right, the distributed computing. Distributed computing, yeah. Uh-huh. So it, it certainly would be more useful, I guess, and uh, efficient than building these huge supercomputers. Right, and a lot cheaper, too. Yeah, I'm not sure what the market for uh, supercomputers is nowadays, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> well, if you're designing a nuclear bomb... Uh, yeah, I guess so. But uh, if you're if you're a company build, building them, how many do you expect to sell, really? So if anyone wants to know more, uh, there's a bunch of articles on the web, but there's a really nice article in uh, Wired. <laughs> All 
right, so if you uh, don't really want to build your own supercomputer, you can build your own life form. My life form? That's right. Oh, wow, you mean like starting from DNA? That's exactly what you can do. Start from DNA and build a, build a virus. Build a virus? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's kind of dangerous too, isn't it? Uh, apparently, it's a, it's a big concern, I guess, for bioterrorists uh, getting hold of this kind of technology and building ah. their own kind of uh, bioterrorist uh, organism. Right. Uh, but apparently a group of researchers have shown now that they have a novel method for stitching together pieces of DNA to uh, reconstruct genomes of uh, viral particles. Wow. Yeah. So what did they do? Like, Was it like a Jurassic Park thing where they found some old DNA and put it together and create like a new uh, virus or something? It's, it's, you know, it's getting close to that. Uh, what they did is they, they have sequences of existing viruses. Right. And what they're trying to do is synthesize this kind of... Uh, virus de novo from just a uh, blank slate. Oh. I think. So they just take a bunch of component DNA and put them together and create the whole virus. Whoa. Yeah. And, you know, they can add in modifications as they wish and create a designer virus uh-huh. in whatever way. Apparently the interesting thing about this is that a, a group earlier had uh, shown that they can stitch these things together one base at a time, a group by uh, led by Eckhard Wimmer at the State University of New York. But that task was pretty laborious. The genome took about three years construct. Oh. Yeah, so uh, the genome pioneer J. Craig Venter. I'm familiar with him. Yeah, he uh, he's the head of the Institute for Biological Energy Alternatives, and he said, well, if that's taking too long, we need to find a better way. And so at a press conference, they apparently showed that uh, they were able to piece together short strands of DNA very simply and uh, do it very rapidly, in fact, and create a virus uh, in a couple of uh, weeks. Couple of weeks. Yeah. Almost like Legos. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's viral Legos. Uh, so can we get this on uh, Eevee or something now? <laughs> <laughs> it'll be uh, it'll be on the Christmas shelves in time uh, for uh, all the young terrorists out there, I guess, too. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of cool. Although this viral genome was only about 5,000 base pairs, they think that they can take these 5,000 base pair segments and stitch those together and make even larger viral genome. Kind of neat stuff, and uh, it'll be interesting. People are then talking about designing their own bacterial cell. But that's going to be a little more difficult because you actually have to get this stuff into a cell and functioning. Mm, right. So if anyone's interested in this, it's found in a recent edition of Science Now. Okay, so you, you know what Bill Gates' biggest mistake was? Yeah, I don't know. What is his biggest mistake? They should have been making condoms from the beginning. Not offering systems. <laughs> well, you know, I, Microsoft condoms. <laughs> Gotta help the little guys. I, I, I guess so, and uh, I don't think it's really a concern for Bill Gates, <laughs> despite the fact that he's a multi-billionaire. But <laughs> right, but well, you know, with all these viruses, you gotta wonder. <laughs> yeah, would yeah. it work? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> but speaking about plastics and such materials, uh, <laughs> some scientists have come out with a polymer or plastic that can. Uh, fluoresce at different temperatures. <laughs> okay. I think I Imagine the possibility. I think I see where you're going with this. I I'm but I I'll let you uh, elucidate this matter. <laughs> so a group in Japan has been designing this polymer that contains this uh fluorescent agent. When this plastic heats up, it changes color. Okay. Right. And of course, this would be very useful for say uh, experiments where they're trying to to measure the temperature of say bacteria or okay. regions, like micro regions in a microorganism. Right, right. And so you can actually just see uh uh, localized changes in temperatures quite easily. Right, right. So they're using this polyacrylamide-based polymer, and uh-huh. that material, it tends to collapse on itself or expand depending on the temperature, and that influences the polarity, and hence uh, it could change the color of whatever uh, you know coloring you also added into this uh, plastic. Oh, I see. So it has to do with uh, basically just uh, it's sensing a, a change, and I guess some sort of uh, 
Yeah. Heating structure. You know, when you excite it, it emits. It emits. Don't we all, really? <laughs> I feel like emitting uh, right now, <laughs> but that's for a whole different reason. 32 degrees, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. 10 cc's, I think. But Interesting. So, uh, yeah, so have uh, they brought this out into the market yet? or? Oh, they... no, these are just very preliminary experiments, but uh, it's quite interesting. They haven't seen it. A, a plastic that you know glows right. or changes its color when it, you change the temperature. Uh, it's certainly true, I guess. If you want to read more, it's in the recent issue of Analytical Chemistry. Well, uh, if you're not going to be uh, stimulating people with uh, <laughs> the exotic polymers. exotic polymers that glow in the dark, you can always use exotic scents. Exotic scents? Yes. Even the sixth sense? The sixth sense or wonderful fragrances. Uh, oh, scents. Scents, yes. Okay. Scents and heat, as it turns out. Heat? Uh, yes. Is, is the heat the, uh, the main ingredient in everything? I think so. I mean, it changes colors of things, and it apparently uh, attracts uh, things involved in sexual reproduction, it seems. Uh, so there's a... Uh, <laughs> you seem not surprised by that. I think I'm just desensitized or something. <laughs> It could be. Well, uh, perhaps uh, you might be surprised to find that the scent of rotting corpses is also involved in uh, sexual behavior. Really? We're not, talking about, we're not talking about humans, are we? No, no, not at all, except in very extreme cases. <laughs> uh, what we're talking about is a certain type of uh, plant called the dead horse arum. The dead horse arum? Yes. Never heard of it. Well, it's, uh, it's a plant that emits a very strong, pungent smell that smells like a stinking corpse. Okay. And as it turns out, it also uh, makes a, it heats up to about the same temperature as a rotting corpse. Really? Yes. So basically, it's mimicking a rotting corpse. Now, why would it want to do that? Well, as it turns out, when it mimics the rotting corpse, it attracts uh, flies to it. Oh, and I see. And basically, it, the flies get in there. They get trapped, essentially, in uh, the little protruding appendix in the flower center. Okay. And basically it winds up pollinating its its uh, flower. Okay. So are these similar to like those uh, Venus fly traps or in a way actually uh omnivorous uh, plants? Yeah, you know, cuz those also emit some kind of uh meaty stench, right? Right. But as it turns out uh these flowers only hold the fly captive for one day okay. before letting it go so it can pollinate okay. another flower. Uh, the interesting thing is people didn't really know what the heat portion of this thing was for. Uh-huh. So uh, a group of researchers actually simulated this by heating up some plants right. that had gone cold to right. see if flies actually went more often to them, and they uh-huh. found that they did. Oh, really? So that it turns out that the heat is another aspect of mimicking a dead corpse that helps attract the flies to it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so cool things to remember if you ever want to attract dead flies to, <laughs> to, to you for whatever reason. Um, I often do, just because I'm lonely. But <laughs> uh, this is work carried out by Robert Raguso, a biologist at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. And that's all for current stories in the world of science this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Brian Gerke will join us to talk to Mark Abram about the Ig Nobel Prizes. So stay tuned. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now here is Brian Gerke with this week's feature, The Ignoble Prizes. Brian? We're talking today to Mark Abrahams, editor of the Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for asking me on. Uh, so your new book, actually, is about the Ig Nobel Prizes. It's just called the Ig Nobel Prizes. Um, can you maybe just start out by telling us what the Ig Nobel Prizes are? Okay. These are real prizes. We've been giving them out for 13 years now. And they're for achievements that first make people laugh and then make people think. And that's an unusual thing in in the world. There are lots and lots of different kinds of prizes given out. And almost all of them are either for the very best of something, Nobel Prizes for the best science, the best literature, Olympic medals for the fastest runners, uh, quickest swimmers. And, uh, some are for the worst things. There's the worst dress list and things like that. But the Ig Nobels really have little or nothing to do with goodness or badness. It's really that oh, entirely other thing that first makes people laugh and makes them think. Right. I've also read, I suppose, um, another requirement is that it has to be, what, research that cannot or should not be repeated? Is that... um, our original description was, which still applies, it's more complicated, is for things that cannot or should not be reproduced. And that ends up including almost everything, because if you're the very first person ever to have done some thing. Nobody else can legitimately claim that firstness. So we could always sneak a lot of things into under that firstness clause. Sure. But after 12 years, finally last year, we, um, we finally boiled it down to a simpler description that's uh, that's even more accurate and that seems clearer to people. I see. Uh, so how did you first get the idea to do this? It seems like a maybe a maybe an odd or idiosyncratic thing to do. So what what led you to do it? There. There are a lot of people who have done things that uh, don't get much recognition and, and maybe should. And as the editor of a science magazine, even an unusual science magazine, a lot of those people were either being brought to my attention or in many cases were calling up and telling me about the things they'd done. And a lot of them were insisting that they're going to get a Nobel Prize and they'd like assistance in doing that. And I was always mystified why they were calling me, but I, I think maybe they call everyone. It was very clear most of them are never going to get a Nobel Prize, but right. the very few of them, it, it also stood out that what this person has done, this ought to get some kind of recognition from the world somehow. And that's pretty much why we decided to start giving out Ig Nobel Prizes. So what's, um? I guess we should just get into people who have won these things to get some example. Do you have any maybe favorites or are ones that you think oh, yeah, most, a uh, are, are, <laughs> are a good example of these projects? Yeah, I'll, I'll, mention, uh, I'll mention just a few. Um, one that always comes to mind pretty quickly is a guy named Troy Hertebees, who lives in a little town in northern Ontario. Troy spent about seven years building, in his backyard, building a suit of armor that uh, he could then put on and go out and spend time in the woods alone with a grizzly bear without getting killed. And during these seven years, he tested the suit on smaller things. Grizzly bears are pretty powerful, and um, and Troy decided at the start he didn't want to risk testing it on a grizzly bear until he was pretty sure it would withstand smaller things. He had people film a lot of these tests. So there are films of Troy in his suit, which looks kind of like a home-built RoboCop suit, 
you've ever seen the movie RoboCop, you have some memory of what that is. But this is built out of old hockey equipment and, and other stuff. And there are films of Troy standing in this huge, bulky, almost immovable suit while they do things like push him over the side of a cliff or ram a jeep into him. At, the jeep's traveling at 40 miles an hour, drop giant weights on him, all sorts of stuff like that. And Troy was careful enough through this whole process that he's still alive. So we gave Troy an Ig Nobel Prize in the field of safety engineering. So did he actually use it uh, to go and, and hang out with grizzly, grizzlies? That turns out to be a complicated question. <laughs> he's made several attempts, which haven't quite come off. The most recent was about a year ago. He managed to get in a room with two Kodiak bears, which are bigger than grizzly bears. And these are two Kodiak bears owned by uh, a trainer of some kind. And the trainer yanked Troy out of there just before one of the bears could get to him. So we still don't quite know. That's hard to know whether it would work. I suppose if uh, if his suit had failed, he would not win an Ig Nobel Prize. There's another prize for... Well, he'd certainly become eligible at that point for a Darwin yeah, Award. Exactly. Uh, yeah, up to this point, he's he's really the opposite of that because he's been so very, very careful. Right. And it's an interesting thing. There was something in the news just a few weeks ago. A man who lives in Malibu, of all places, had this same burning desire to go out in the woods and spend time with a grizzly bear, but decided to do it without any kind of protection. And uh, the news report was pretty, sorry to use the word again, but grizzly, and uh, apparently he was eaten by a bear. This was a case of somebody not paying attention to the, the proud work of an Ig Nobel Prize winner. Right, yeah. Got to do your uh, got to do your literature, literature search before you yep. start your inv investigation into it these helps. things, right? Yeah. It helps. So there have been lots of other things. Uh, we gave out the uh, Medicine Prize one year to a Canadian doctor named Peter Bars, who had published a medical research paper called Injuries Due to Falling Coconuts. Right. These happen frequently, I suppose, in certain parts of the world. Yeah, exactly. He had spent several years working in Papua New Guinea, and down on the coast, the coastal regions, there are lots of very, very tall coconut palms. And he was curious when he started working in a hospital there about what kinds of injuries were the most frequent in that area, what, what common things were bringing people into the hospital. Nobody had ever really kept any records. So he started going through all the information he could find. And he discovered that a surprising amount of the injuries, the severe injuries, the, the ones that were bad enough to cause hospitalization, were caused by falling coconuts, one way or another. Often it was people who lived up in the mountainous highlands would come down to visit their relatives on the coast. To them, the palm trees were nice, pretty, tall things that looked perfect for taking a nap under. Right. Uh, only um, if there's a heavy coconut, and the coconuts there are large and very heavy, and they fall something like 90 feet, and the physics of that is not a pleasant thing if you're on the receiving end. Absolutely. Wow. So you've also, I mean, there's a, I guess, a broad range, having having looked through the book and having actually followed these awards myself for the last couple of years, um, there's a broad range of, of types of people who get these awards. Sometimes it's uh, based on, on well-known news, like a few years back, um, the Economics Prize went to a bunch of different corporations during the Enron et al., 
scandal. Right. That was for, I think it was about 26 different companies, Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson, good many others. They all share the economics prize for um, adapting the mathematical concept of imaginary numbers for use in the business world. Right. This year, the economics prize, just a month ago, the ceremony was on October 2nd, uh, this year the economics prize went to a man named Carl Schwarzler, uh, and, and he shared it with the nation of Liechtenstein because jointly they have made it possible for people to rent the entire country of Liechtenstein for right. corporate conventions, wedding, bar mitzvahs, and other events. Sort of a popular news of the weird item in the past couple of months. I These think. things do tend to crop up yeah. sometimes in uh, <laughs> in many places, yeah. And rent your, you can go on your own little business excursion uh, with, with your whole company for some kind of conference in the nation of Liechtenstein. Mm-hmm. Quite interesting. So how do you go about finding your nominees? I mean, somehow you have to sift through these things, and you get nominees from from all sorts of different other different areas. Obviously, that's true. So Increasingly, they things? seem to find us. Yeah, we started okay. this in. Uh, 1991, and it's grown every year. So now there are about 5,000 or so nominations that come in every year. Anyone can send in a nomination. It could be somebody you know, somebody you know of. Uh, it can be a, um, a friend. It can be an enemy, a relative. Uh, a lot of people nominate themselves. Something between, I think, 10 and 20% of the nominations are people who seem to be quite desperate to win a Nobel Prize for themselves. And how do you, I guess, sift through these 5,000 nominations and come up with your oh, 5 to 10 winners each year? Uh, we have 10 winners every year, and a lot of them sort themselves out. It's A lot of them, it's very clear from the beginning that they're, although they are quite remarkable and deserve something, they're not quite going to make it in the competition for an Ig Nobel Prize. Uh, we have a lot of people who are part of the Ig Nobel Board of Governors. It's the editors of the Annals of Improbable Research and a lot of scientists from around the world, um, a fair number of journalists, uh, a lot of other people. Several people in this group have Nobel Prizes. And when we narrow it down to 100, 200, then we start very carefully looking into the details of them to make sure, first of all, that the person does exist and that the person did do what we were told they did. And uh, when we finally select tentatively the winners, we try to get in touch with most of them and see if this might, if winning an Ig Nobel Prize might somehow cause them genuine difficulties of some kind. And if they think that it might, they get the opportunity to turn it down. The, that's very seldom happened. Almost every case where somebody has turned down an Ig Nobel Prize, it's because they had somebody who was essentially an enemy, often their boss, and they were fearful that this would be yet one more thing that that person would try to uh, turn against them right. somehow. Which I guess this leads, though, into my next question is, what is the typical response to being told you've just won an Ig Nobel Prize, which sounds a little uh, pejorative, the name, but uh, has, I guess, come into uh, a bit of, of repute in the last couple of years? How do people, how do people usually, how do usually reply uh, to that? Silence is the most common right. um, thing uh, among most of them. In the early days, most people didn't know what it was, and now every year, maybe about half of them know of it. Most people are surprisingly good about deciding this is worth doing, and even a few of them who have, have had a little bit of hesitancy at first, uh, pretty quickly when they check into it, decided it's something they'd like to do. Um, there have been quite a few by now who were delighted 
son a year ago who uh, had a reaction I had never heard before. This is one of the co-authors of a paper that won the biology prize in 2002. Uh, their paper was called Courtship Effects of Ostrichity, uh, Courtship Behavior of Ostriches Towards Humans Under Farming Conditions in Britain. And uh, <laughs> that's what they won for. But when I called up Charles Paxton, one of the co-authors, he said, oh, I'd always expected that you would be calling me someday, but I thought it would be for my work on sea monsters. <laughs> oh. Something you presumably had not even heard about. Yeah, that's true. Wow. So, and, and, but that's a good illustration of something that's true of many of the winners, that what they did to win an Ig Nobel Prize really is just a small part of a big and sometimes really varied story. And that's a big part of the reason why I did a book about a lot of the winners and went back and looked at not only what we knew about them, but a lot more detail about how they decided to do this, um, if they're at all clear on why they decided to do it, uh, and what they went on to do afterwards. And some of them went on to do remarkable things. Right. Of course, some of them we still don't know a huge amount about. The, the uh, Economics Prize winner, many years, we have not been able to get in touch with because typically that uh, person has... Uh, had a previous five to 15-year right. prison engagement somewhere. A little harder to get in touch. Uh, if people want to sort of look into past winners, is there um, anywhere, say, a website they can go to? Or if they yeah, there's a few things to magazine? do. Um, the book will, will give a lot more detail right. on, on lots of stuff. The book is called The Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, our website is at improbable.com, www.improbable.com. Improbable.com. And that'll give a complete list of the winners, links to a lot of their work, uh, also a lot of press accounts of them, and uh, in some cases, especially Troy, uh, I've been collecting a lot of the news reports of what he's, this is Troy with the grizzly bear suit, of right, what he's yeah. been up to in later years. Still kicking, uh, is he? Oh, yeah. Um Sometimes that's literally a good description. <laughs> some some people surprise you, I guess. Yeah. He's still kicking, still being kicked. Right. Uh, well, I think we're about ready to wrap this up. Thanks again for joining us today. Okay, thanks. Oh, I would like to say if anybody who is listening today knows of somebody or runs across somebody who deserves an Ig Nobel Prize, please get in touch with us. Let us know. Yeah, and can they also do that at improbable.com? Uh, yes. Find Good the information on how to do that? Great. Mark, Mark Abraham's new book is The Ig Nobel Prizes. It's available from Dutton Press. Um, he's also the editor of The Annals of Improbable Research, which can be reached at www.improbable.com. With Mark Abrahams for Berkeley Grox, I'm Brian Gerke. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. And this is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out the distance between the North and the South Pole. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Crocs. And now here's a Tokyo kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the distance between North and South Pole? Well, if you walk from North to South Pole, it is approximately 12,500 miles. So this would make the circumference of the Earth、uh, 25,000 miles. Yeah, thank you very much, Tokyo Kid. I'm a s t e r governor, and I'm going to come here and I'm going to slip out your skull and show it to your face. <laughs> It's not going to be very good. And so on, this is a very interesting thing. Is,、uh, what is going to be the crash of the week? There are so many islands on the planet, and I'm going to take the islands and I'm going to crash them and crash them. But the question is, which one's the biggest island for me to crash? I don't know, but I'm here in California, I'm going to crash the greatest islands because I'm the governor. Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us at coxandhamil.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might know that I'm going to crush your head. Hey, thanks a lot, Arnie. And I guess that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.